<laughs> okay. Culture happens. Whether planned or not, all companies have culture. And no one knows more about how culture works than New York Times bestselling author Daniel Coyle. In Daniel's latest book, The Culture Code, he goes inside some of the world's most successful organizations. You know the ones. Pixar, San Antonio Spurs, U.S. Navy SEAL Team 6. And he reveals what makes them tick. Daniel demystifies the whole culture-building process. We talk about how companies can generate cohesion and cooperation and how teams can function with a single mind. Because, let's face it, if your company's not concerned with impacting your people and the larger world, well, you're in the wrong business. I'm Megan Keeney-Anderson, and this is The Growth Show. So maybe we could start off, Dan, by you just getting us into the ballpark in terms of the concept, telling us in your words, what is culture? It seems like sort of an amorphous thing to be thinking about. It's the most amorphous thing to think about. I mean, it's the word that people use when they can't figure out how to describe that thing that organizations have, you know, when we can't yeah. figure it out, we say, yeah, this is the, it's the culture, right? And we typically perceive it. It's been perceived over the, over the years as Two things. One is incredibly powerful, which it is. You know, the old saying that mm-hmm. it eats strategy for lunch is, a, is, is repeated a lot because it happens to be true. Um, you know, culture is the sum of all the different interactions of the group. Um, but in a deeper way, if we want to sort of pull the camera way back to, um, to really what's going on here, is very, culture is very unique to, to humans. And mm. it, is the, it is the way in which linked relationships. It's a series of connected relationships moving toward a goal. For a visual, right. think about a flock of birds. Like they're, they're solving problems, they're moving at speed, they're moving toward a goal away from danger. And culture is the way in which we do that. You know, when you map that onto business, when you map that onto sports, when you map that onto how families interact, that's what it is. So it's, it really deep down is this way we have of signaling each other and creating a connection. All right. So let me play devil's advocate for just a minute. Why should companies sort of make changes or be actively concerned with something that feels somewhat inherent, uh, that's not easily measured, that seems like it's just human nature? Well, the one answer is is a number, 756. Um, there was a Harvard study that looked at culture, measuring the strength of culture. They looked at 200 companies over 11 years, and it was they were paired, actually. Some had a strong culture, meaning they were very cohesive. They acted with a single mind. They acted like one organism. Other had a weak culture, which means that they weren't really as connected. Again, picture that flock of birds. And what they found is over 11 years, the difference in net revenue over 11 years was 756% more revenue. So that's, that's the main reason to be concerned, that it actually is another word for performance. If you're looking for people... Culture is the way in which groups add up to be more than the sum of their parts, or alternatively, with weak culture, less than the sum of their parts. And every group ah. is somewhere on that scale of zero to seven, five, six. They're somewhere on there. They're either adding up to more or they're adding up to less. And culture is the difference. And, and so that's why we pay attention to it. Culture abhors a vacuum. If you do not pay attention to it, you will get whatever default culture is in the oxygen of your group, of your people. If you do pay attention to it, and the groups that I visited over the last five years for the book, The Culture Code, all paid keen attention to it. Groups like Zappos, IDEO, 
the San Antonio Spurs, Navy SEAL Team 6, Pixar. These are places that have approach culture with great intent. And the reason they do that is because they know how linked it is to performance. Okay, so let's say I'm a startup and I've hired the brightest candidates, the smartest MBA geniuses, and they're all at the top of their game. Yep. Can I just worry about getting the basics right of that business and then worry about culture later? How does timing fit into this? Absolutely not. I mean, the culture, the first moments in culture are the most important moments in culture. As a, uh, a psychologist at Harvard who says that there's a couple of key moments in culture that really determines the norms with which a group will interact. One is the moment of coming together. That moment when the group comes together, all these unconscious norms get established of how we're going to interact. And right. one of the most amazing examples of that is, is the spaghetti marshmallow test. Actually, it's, a, it's an engineer. Actually, his name is Peter Skillman, and he set up a contest. And the contest was really simple. Who can build a taller tower out of the following materials? 20 pieces of raw spaghetti, a yard of tape, and a single standard-sized marshmallow. And the only rule is that the marshmallow has to go on the top. And so he set up teams to do that, right? He set up some teams of CEOs, some teams of MBA students, some teams of lawyers, and some teams of kindergartners. And huh. long story short, the kindergartners win. They build a taller tower. And the reason that they win is because we typically think of culture the wrong way and of group performance the wrong way. You know, we think of it as being a function of intelligence. Like if you get all the smart MBA guys in the same room, you'll be intelligent, right? You'll win, right. you'll build a taller one. That test shows really vividly, because what happens is all the adult groups, the CEOs, the MBAs, the lawyers, they talk. Like they start out by talking a lot and they right. have ideas and they improve those ideas and it all looks super rational and really cooperative, really intelligent, but the group performance isn't any good because all they spend all their time talking. They spend no time doing and they're actually dealing with the classic thing that affects all human interactions, which is status management. They're managing their Got status it. with each other. And so if you put smart people in a room and hope that they work out, that's a terrible thing to do because what they'll do is they'll do the default human behavior. They'll manage status. They'll be wondering, who's really in charge here? Where's this going? Like, is it okay to crack a joke? Is it okay to make a suggestion? Who's in power? Yeah. Am I in power? So that whisper in the back of your brain, and it originates from a place in your brain called the amygdala, absolutely demolishes group performance. The reason the kindergartners win is because they don't worry about that is they are safe. They create safety with each other. And that's why intentionally creating psychological safety, which is sort of the first of the three steps I talk in the book, is the most powerful thing that any organization can do because it sends a real signal. We are connected. We share a future. And that allows you to do the things that good startups have to do, which is have ideas, take risks, and above all, tell each other the truth. Yeah. So there's a lot there. And I definitely want to dive into the security issue. But you also mentioned some of the teams that you have been embedded with. You've been lucky enough to sort of watch operate. Um, Pixar, the Navy SEAL Team 6, Google, so many others. Mm. When you look at the history of teams that you've gotten to watch, what are the commonalities that you see between these groups? The platform, the most unmissable thing, the key is psychological safety. They create okay. a safe connection. They intentionally build safety. And you see that in all different ways. Um, I saw it really vividly in the, in the San Antonio Spurs. You know, there's a team that is, over the last 20 years, the most successful in American sports, bar none. Um, and they're doing it when they're drafting at the bottom of the draft. They're not able to get the best talent. Um, but the, we are, they are able to do is combine the talent they have uh, more effectively. And when you watch... The coach interact. I mean, a couple things about the Spurs that were interesting, you notice right away. 
One is that they eat together more often than most families. Huh. Like food is this incredible vehicle of connection with them, food and wine. I was there, I saw a player miss a big shot. And the next day, the coach goes over to him, Coach Popovich, who has a reputation as the most sort of cranky, uh, authoritarian coach. In fact, he's not at all. I mean, he is, mm-hmm. but he also balances that with this incredible care. He He's always, for that player, he was making a reservation for dinner and he was at ordering the wine. He was asking how the wine was. And they continually send these signals of connection. I saw another great signal that was sent uh, partway through practice. They go to watch film. And so I'm thinking they had lost the night before and I'm thinking, oh, this is going to be like a harsh film session. But what comes up on the screen is not game film. What came up on the screen was a CNN documentary about the history of the Civil Rights Act. And the coach starts asking his players questions like, what would you have done? You know, would you have marched? Yeah. He was intensely curious about them as people, huh. about the whole person. And they had this really cool conversation about, about, you know, history and prejudice and racism and all kinds of stuff that was way beyond basketball. So that moment when the leader is sending a signal, it's so basic. It's so basic, you know, just to sort of say, hey, I see you. Um, I'm yeah. curious. I'm really curious about you. I want to learn about you. Um, I'm going to hang out and, and talk with you and, and, and take care of you. That is that that sends a signal to the to our amygdala that sends a signal to the oldest part of our brain that we are connected and and that is the doorway for other interactions so that's that's the big one that's the main one that's like if you can build safety um in those moments of your startup then you can go on to the other steps now let me let me dig in a little bit more there because i think that's really interesting so because the examples you give are they're very human examples it's something that this coach was part of him. Mm. So how do you, but you also talk about being very intentional in creating these signals of safety. Yeah. How do you balance being intentional, but not over orchestrating something so it comes across as false? Oh, I know. That's the key thing, isn't it? Because this stuff can seem so fake, right? If it doesn't, right. if it doesn't come from a place of genuine care, um, it can send the opposite signal, which is I'm a manipulative puppeteer um, who's, who's faking my care for you, which sends the other signal. Um, Mm -hmm. it has to come. I mean, you know, I think good leaders go through reflective periods where they, they really do think deeply about what it's all about. Um, and I think Nadella, the head of Microsoft went through one recently early in his career. Uh, he was very focused on outcomes. Um, he went through some difficulty, uh, with his family, with his, with a kid who faced a lot of challenges. And he talks openly about how much that increased his empathy. Um, you know, the idea though, which kind of gives, it shows that the idea that empathy is not something that you're sort of born with or not, you know, and it's something that you can develop like a muscle. And when you realize the importance of that, when you realize just that our people's sense of connection is not just sort of like a quarterly number, um, it, it is something really at the basis of who we are. Um, creating, reflecting, thinking about that is one of the more important things that that you can do. You know, we spend a lot of our, a lot of our lives at work. Um, and if, if you're not thinking about the way in which you're impacting your peoples and impacting the larger world and having actual concern for your people, then, you know, you're in the wrong business. Um, you know, it's a people centered business and leaders who, who, who find that either by accident, by sort of the, the nurturing environments in which they were grown up or who, Embark on it like Nadella did with with a certain amount of intentionality and saying no I'm gonna I'm gonna develop this this is a shortcoming that I have and I'm gonna I'm gonna really lean into this and and learn how to be that kind of person um, shows a real I mean it, it sort of shows that kind of growth ends up being some of the most powerful growth a person can have yeah 
Because I would imagine that most people, it's sort of a spectrum. It's not as binary as you flip a switch and suddenly you're empathetic and (laughs) you have a culture. There's some actual development and consistent work that has to happen there. What would you advise people who feel like, you know, maybe they're doing a little bit of this, but not as intentionally or as thoroughly as they could be. I think the first thing is to is to rid yourself of this fake belief. We often have this belief that we can either be nice or tough, right? Like I can either mm-hmm. be a caring person or I can be really high candor. You know, I, I can either tell you the truth or I can be nice to you. And what all these places I visited for the Culture Code showed me is that that is a false dichotomy. You do not have to choose between being nice and tough. In fact, in all of these places, they are both. They, are, they have extremely high standards, but they exhibit supportive care to help their people meet those standards. Um, yeah. So it's a false dichotomy to say, and actually they strengthen each other. When Coach Popovich takes care of his people and, and eats with his people and shows them those films about the Civil Rights Act, that actually makes his tough coaching much easier to take because it's coming from a place of genuine care. So I think that's a huge barrier, this idea that we have to kind of choose between those two. And the second thing I would say to people who are looking to improve that, send that signal more, develop that muscle more, is to really send a signal that about their own learning, that, that a lot of these moments, when you frame them in terms of your own learning, end up being more powerful. Right. And for example, uh, Laszlo Bach at Google, which was to send the two-line email which is when you, a leader sends an email to all his team, all the people around him that says, hey, tell me one thing you want me to start doing and one thing you want me to stop doing. I want to learn. Mm-hmm. Help me be better. And it's a really short email, right? It takes no time to send. And yet it sends this really powerful signal of saying, look, I care what you think. I, I, I want to get better. I wanna, I, I'm, I'm like all of you guys. I'm learning here. So help me learn how to be better. And so that ends up creating, sending an incredible signal of, of really, to go back to that term we started with, safety. Like this is a safe place to share what's really going on. Now, the other thing I wonder about is typically you throw yourself into a company at on any given day and if you ask the leaders, they would say, oh yeah, everybody here feels pretty, pretty safe to share their, right. their views. And right. Right. there's sort of an assumption that, that is made there uh, that may not 100% be accurate. So how do companies or how should companies really identify if there is a need to address safety in their existing culture, if that culture does uh, make it easy for anyone to share an opinion or an idea? It is a continual challenge because of the way the human brain is built. It is a continual challenge to do that. So it never, ever goes away. Um, actually, success makes it harder. Mm. You know, success makes it harder to, to create those moments where people are really telling each other the truth and feeling safe enough to be vulnerable with each other. So it's a constant two-step of creating safety and, and sharing vulnerability. That That challenge never goes away. And trying to continually, it's, it's sort of a moving target to continually send that signal. There's something that happens in a lot of, of organizations, especially startups, and I think of it as the smoothness disease. It's when everything kind of goes easy, right? Like, oh, great idea. Yeah. Let's do that. Better idea. Let's do that. And there's never any conflict, right? That's actually a sign of a troubled culture. That's actually a sign. If it's not safe to somebody to say, hold on, I'm going to put up a stop sign. We really need to argue about this. Um, one clear signal of great culture that I saw when I visited these places, and that includes that includes Pixar and San Antonio Spurs and the and Navy SEALs and all the other places that we've mentioned, is there was conflict. Like, they yeah. weren't nice places to work. 
what I mean is that they weren't like all happy, happy, bubbly, bubbly, everything's awesome all the time works. They were actually a little bit the opposite. Like they were intense places to work. People are solving really hard problems and they're having hard conversations. And so the absence of conflict and the smoothness disease is actually a sign that you've got your culture a little bit wrong. You need to create more safety in that moment to say, no, no, no. The leader said, wait, no, no, no. I really need to know. I need you to knock this down. I need you to really go after this idea. If you just tell me, yes, that's, that's fake collaboration. Like real collaboration right. is conflict oriented. And so feeling safe enough to have that conflict and feeling safe enough to be that vulnerable and, and show your weakness and display your weakness and talk about the weakness and make the weakness stronger. You know, groups that are weak together are strong and groups that hide their weaknesses from each other through smoothness are weak. So how does success make it more difficult? You would think that you would get better over time at something like this. It makes it difficult, Bill, because you start to naturally believe that your future success is destined. I mean, we've seen that story over and over again in business where you have somebody who you can't, it's really hard to imagine the future. And it's really hard, especially in an era of incredible change, to imagine a future where you'll be uh, obsolete. And so yeah. what success does is it makes you relax. I mean, luxury is kind of a narcotic. And so when you get that narcotic, you know, the people who made, I can't even remember, what was the name of that camera that was everybody had? Was it called a flip or something like that? I can't even remember the name of it. Everyone had one and then it was gone, right? The next, and two years later, it was in, built in everybody's phone. So any startup that sort of feels like we've got it figured out, that's a dangerous moment. There's a, there's a saying, one of the groups I looked at a little bit uh, for the book was the All Blacks, which is a, not to be too sporty, but they're the best uh, world uh, sports team. They're, they're a rugby team, the New Zealand All right. Blacks. And they've got a great saying. And it says, when you're at the top of your game, that's when you change your game. Which I love that because it really shows that learning edge where you have to live is demands that you don't just sort of, oh, I'm at the top of my game. Time to coast, you know, I can take my foot off the right. accelerator. It's actually the opposite. That's the time. Use that extra space and bandwidth you have to have those hard conversations about innovation, have those hard conversations about where you're going to be in 10 years, five years, five months. Got it. You know, you mentioned these things and it sort of feels like it's going against human nature, right? In many ways. Mm. Is it, you know, does it take some sort of a, a discipline or a practice again and again to, uh, to keep bringing this up? Does it need almost an instigator? It does. That's exactly right. It takes a few things and did you put your, your finger on it. it. It really is. What I saw in these places that I visited and what, what sort of the science would underline is culture is a habit. And this especially is important when it comes to the sort of second basic piece, which is vulnerability. You know, if we started mm -hmm. by talking about safety, Safety is a platform, but those moments of shared vulnerability where people are telling each other the truth, it's called a vulnerability loop where each of us is open to the other. And it's quite a remarkable psychological moment because it demands several things. Like I need to show weakness. You need to see, you need to, to show that you've seen that weakness and then share your weakness, your truth back to me. Um, and it's, 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 and what's really powerful, what really good groups do is that they turn that into a habit. Uh, one example of that is how the Navy SEALs use a technique called AAR, which stands for After Action Review. And okay. it works like this. Like, okay, we're, we're Navy SEAL team. We get off the helicopter. We just finished a mission. Everything went really well because we're Navy SEALs, right? It went great. We, we, did, we did the job. We get off the helicopter. What happens immediately is you circle up and you start digging into what went right. 
and what went right. wrong and what you're going to do differently next time. And it's incredibly hard to do. Like they're really tense meetings because, you know, you're, you're sort of saying, well, why did you do that, Megan? Why did you go left instead of right? And you're saying, well, why did you do that, Dan? You went right instead of left. And we're, right. we're having like these little conflicts and they're really tense. And there's some, there's often like some shame and some, and some pain. And, and yet, the SEALs do them after every mission, after every training mission, because it's the most powerful thing a human group can do, which is circle up and tell each other the truth, have these vulnerability loops. Um, and it's almost like the way it functions in a group is almost the same way that like exercise functions in a body. Like it's this yeah. moment of pain that brings strength. It's this moment of like discomfort that actually makes you more cohesive and more connected. Because um, it's what you're doing is you're building a shared mental model for handling problems in the future. You're saying, yeah. what really happened here? What are we really going to do next time? And so that that discipline, that habit, that practice, whatever you want to call it, exists in successful groups across all genres. They're all doing that really, really basic human thing of like, okay, let's circle up. This is going to be kind of awkward. This is going to be kind of hard, but yeah. let's, let's figure out what really happened. And it, over time, as we do it, just like with any habit or practice, it gets easier. God, yeah. I was going to say, that seems like it would burn you out, but it, it seems like what you're saying is the opposite, that with time, it becomes more normal um, and it has a rejuvenating effect to it. It does. Nice. It keeps everybody on that learning edge where the leaders are constantly sending that signal. Hey, I didn't know that. Teach me that. What, how do we do that better? And, and so it ends up being this, this larger cultural signal that sends several signals at once. Like we're tell the truth here. It's safe for everybody to speak up. We're about something bigger than ourselves. And so it ends up being this great, this great cultural tonic. Yeah. What you're talking about is building for a long-term culture, mm -hmm. but a lot of these things are kind of painful in the short term. So yep. how do you retain employees through that period of kind of rough conflict and vulnerability to get to that long-term vision for culture? Well, I guess the first step would be to, you know, be very painstaking about the hiring process. You know, the two most important moments in group life are the day you bring someone in and the day you kick someone out or someone leaves. Mm -hmm. And so v actually honoring the, the importance of those two moments. Um, most of the hiring processes I saw in these places were incredibly painstaking, involving the whole group looking at each person over and over again to make sure that you had a good contributor. Um, you know, we often talk about cultural fit. Cultural fit, you end up creating a monoculture, but finding a good cultural contributor is a, is a better way to think about culture. Um, mm -hmm. And so that ends up being an, a really a really important part of doing it. The other thing is to constantly model and send the signal that this stuff is really important. You know, when there's an AAR and everybody's involved and everybody is is doing that daily practice, that daily habit of of circling up and having that kind of painful conversation. Um, that ends up sending an incredible signal of connection and shows the importance of this. You're really elevating it beyond the other things that you're doing. There's, right. that, there's that choice that, that leaders often have, especially in startups, right? It's that choice between progress and people. Like I can either make, make a little more progress and work on this project and make a little, advance a little more ground, or I can kind of circle back and see what's going on with that team. I can just check yeah. in with those people and see how they're doing. And the cultures that I saw when ever given that choice, they would bias toward the person. They would bias toward checking on the team function. IDEO is yeah. a really good example of that, actually. They, they're all about creative teams. They're a great design firm, and they're, they're small, nimble, all these different teams solving this incredible array of really complicated problems. And they actually have the habit, the practice, of having team meetings 
before, during, and after each project. They call it pre-flight, mid-flight, and post-flight meetings. And the purpose of those nice, meetings yep. is to just tend to the dynamic. How's it going? Is it, Who's checked out? Are you still excited about this project? Why? What's going right? What's going wrong? Um, and they have a facilitator come in for each of those meetings. And it strikes me as that's a tiny but really powerful thing that uh, that a culture can do that is pointing up the, 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 the sort of to say, look, our interactions come first. They're the, they're the highest priority thing we have is how we interact here. And that makes the pain of those moments of vulnerability and weakness uh, easier to take. Yeah. So, okay, so you have safety. Yep. And you have shared vulnerability. Yep. So now I just tell employees what to do or, t- you know, is there another... Uh, pillar here that we need to lean on. Ah, there's how did how did you know? There there's another pillar, and and it's really, it's really. Let's go back to that flock of birds image, right? Okay, we've got the flock of birds connected. Okay, they're connected, mm-hmm. and we've got them sharing information with each other, like telling you know knowing what the others are doing without hiding that information. That's kind of like vulnerability, right? Sharing accurate information. But the question is, where are we going? Like, what is this all about? You know, where, what's north? What's south? What's the most important thing? Um, and that really comes down to establishing a super clear purpose. And, and the groups that I studied all used basically the same, the same technique. Um, and what they, what they did, it's actually kind of funny. Um, they used a lot of different techniques, but one of the ones that kind of was, was most remarkable to me was they, they created kind of a mantra map. You know, they used these, these catchphrases, these kind of, I gotta say they were kind of cheesy. They were kind of corny. They were kind of obvious catchphrases over and over and over and over and over again to create a tremendous amount of awareness around what what was important and what was important. And yeah. even even for the Navy SEALs, right? They talk all the time about how they're the quiet professionals and the only easy day was yesterday and they shoot, move, and communicate. And those mm-hmm. those mantras, this whole sort of, if you think of it as kind of an ecosystem of mantras, really help in a very confusing world, a very distracting world, um, can create clarity around what is the important thing? What is the yeah. most important thing that we do together um, and and point, point toward that? So do you need to establish that sort of culture internally before you can solve for the customer? Absolutely. And, and the best story that I know uh, that really captures that is the, the story of, of the salmon crisis uh, that happened at, a, at this really good New York restaurant, um, Danny Meyer's Restaurants. He's a, he's a famous restaurateur in, in New York. He owns Gramercy Tavern and Union Square Cafe, Shake Shack, uh, this fast casual brand. And one of the, one of the finer restaurateurs in, in the world. He started, he had one very successful restaurant. Uh, which was which was called Union Square Cafe, and then he opened a second one called the Gramercy Tavern. And when he opened the second one, uh, business in both started to slip because Danny Meyer really? couldn't be in both places at the same time. When he was in the room of one restaurant, everybody knew what great looked like. Everybody knew how to behave. Everybody knew how what the culture was because they could look at him and see it. They could see by the way he moved the salt shaker. They could see by the way he interacted with customers. They could see by the way he navigated problems. When he had two, he couldn't be at both, and the service started to slip. And one day at the Gramercy Tavern, uh, a customer ordered salmon. And it was an old customer who had been there many times and loved it. And the salmon came, and the customer wasn't happy with it. It was kind of underdone. And so she asked if she could get another dish. And then as she left, the maitre d' handed her her leftover salmon in kind of a passive-aggressive way to sort of say, well, here's the salmon, you know, that's still perfectly fine. Um, And she wrote a letter to Danny Meyer. And that's when Danny Meyer realized 
this was a crisis. This was this was about their culture. What are right. we? Are we some passive aggressive holier than thou snooty New York restaurant or are we a place that puts the customer first? So to his immense credit, he closed both restaurants for uh, for a weekend and they all went off and had this big retreat where they hashed out, argued, had tough conversations and ended up with a clear priority list of what what came first, what came second, what came third, what came fourth. And what it was, was their interactions with each other comes first. Their interaction with a customer comes second. Interaction with a community comes third. Suppliers comes fourth. And investors comes fifth. This wow. clarity, a lot of places might flip that. They might, well, the investor really comes first. Um, but make creating clarity in this billboard-like way around that comes first. Because what he realized is if we treat each other right, if we model and live the kind of courtesy and care and warmth and familial hospitality that we want to create in the customer, if we'd model that with ourselves, our customer will get it. Our yeah. customer will get it. So that's what enables everything else. It enables everything else. When you get that interaction wrong, you get everything else wrong. And I saw that yeah. pattern repeated over and over again. The best, each culture that I visited, whether it was the SEALs or, the, or Pixar or anybody else, they all put their interactions with each other at the very, very top of their priority list because that's just, that's kind of the way tribes work. That does make me nervous though when you talk about that specific example because that is a side effect of growth, right? And we all are sort of taught to see growth as this really positive thing and we're all aspiring for it. Yep. So you open up offices globally and you expand from one continent to another, one city to another and multiple headquarters. How do you grow and create these little microcultures of different offices around the world and not fall into that same trap that that you know, restaurateur fell into where he couldn't stretch the culture to all of these places? Yeah, I know, I know. Well, you know, that, that is the challenge. That is the challenge. Do you value growth above all? And, and, and if, you, if you do value growth above all, you will, you will end up in that situation that he ended up. You will have your own salmon moments for sure. Um, some ways to sort of approach that and mitigate that effect, you know, would be all around hiring, you know, hiring really, really slowly, making sure you get that right. Another way to mitigate it is to really realize and, and, and reconcile yourself to the fact that you're not going to be able to create a monoculture. Each culture in these different continents and different states and different cities is going to have its own unique flavor. But by creating these other larger priority lists, these other things that are non-negotiable uh, to say, really, our relationship with each other comes first. And the third thing that, that I saw Danny Meyer do anyway is to really have kind of a culture ninja, culture uh, cop uh, in a way, whose job it is. Uh, his name is Richard Corain, and, and he was at Danny Meyer's restaurants. And every time Danny would open a restaurant, Richard would go there and spend a couple weeks. And yeah. he would watch it. He would just sit back and watch for the first few days. And then he would notice things. And then he would sort of, like in Danny Meyer's stead, he would have certain gatherings that were designed, meetings designed to put, for instance, at one restaurant, they weren't opening on time. Um, They're opening a couple minutes late. That's actually a really big deal. You know, when you open a couple minutes late and you have your, your best customers waiting outside in the cold uh, for, for lunch. And so he ended up um, creating a lot of clarity and discipline around that value of opening exactly on time every single day, no matter what. Um, yeah. And so having those kinds of people who don't seem to have a real job, you know, in some ways, because if you're, if you're managing culture, you're doing a lot of observation, you're doing is a lot of open time. It's not like, um, some kind of, some kind of job that you can absolutely write down what you're going to do every single day on a piece of paper. So having those kinds of Richard Corains in there who can, 
who can be that that sort of culture uh, trooper and and really make it clear what what's important and what's not and giving get real information back to the back to the mothership of what's actually happening. Yeah. So one risk in all of this is that the customer grows impatient waiting for you to get your own internal culture in order. One example that you gave in your work was you talk about Johnson & Johnson mm. and the scandal that they had around Tylenol yep. getting laced with cyanide in the 1980s. They completely lost trust with their customers, and I would imagine some of that stemmed from operations internally and not having that safety vulnerability and sort of shared goal, uh, shared aspiration there. Let's say, you know, you lose the customer trust right. and you know you have to rebuild it from within. How do you then regain that trust with customers? Well, Johnson & Johnson is actually the, the poster child of that regaining of trust. I mean, it, it was actually the worst corporate crisis, I think, ever. 1982, about half a dozen people in Chicago died because they ingested Tylenol that was uh, some madman had, had poisoned these pills, which there was no safety packaging. He had poisoned the pills, put them back on the shelves, and, and people died. And so Johnson yeah. Johnson gets a call out of the blue, hey, your, your, your product is killing people. What are you going to do? And at the time their public relations arm consisted of like one person. There was, there was almost nothing there. And, but what was interesting is that there was, there was an executive there. His name was James Burke. And, and for the last four years prior to that, James Burke had been um, creating a lot of really intense conversations around a really simple question, which is what comes first for us? He had, he had noticed in the company that there had been some, the culture had just been kind of loose. People hadn't really yeah. put it first. So it created these intense conversations. And out of those intense conversations came a tremendous consensus, which was the safety of our customer comes first. The safety of the user of our product comes first. And because of that, when the Tylenol crisis happened, um, they had this series of choices to make as a company. Um, should they pull the rest of their products from the shelves? They didn't even have to think about it. They did. Should they interact with openness on with with talk show hosts, with the public, with the FBI? They did. Right. With, should they invent tamper-proof packaging? Well, they they did. Their values pointed them that way, and as a result, they re, they reacted with this unbelievable openness against the advice of their lawyers. He went on the Donahue show and talked really. Burke did, talked really openly about the problem. Against the advice of the FBI, they pulled product, three hundred fifty million dollars of product from the shelves to send a signal to the public, like, look, we care about you. We don't want to take even the smallest risk if you're at stake. So because yeah. they had that clear North Star, that North Star of our customers, our users' health comes first, because they had that, it made all these decisions really, really simple. And there was a time, actually, there was a, there was a, a media consultant who said, you know, Tylenol's done. Right, there's no way Tylenol is going to be right. around. Their, they, their product—it wasn't just like the, you know, a car having safety issues. This product was poison. But guess what? Because of the way that they interacted, because of the signals, and I would call them signals of vulnerability, signals of weakness that they sent to the public to say, "No, look, this is the truth. We're gonna, we're gonna grapple with this." We see this in real time with, with what's happened at Uber, with what's happened at Facebook, which what's happened at Wells Fargo. I was just going to ask you about this. And Starbucks even, you know, I wondered if it, what your take was on Starbucks shutting down for a day uh, to address this and get on the same page as a company and how that differs from Uber's approach. There's a lot of this in the media right now. I know. What's your, it must be a fascinating time for you. Well, I think you can clearly distinguish fake from real in some ways. And in some cases, it feels slightly more real. Like Starbucks actually taking the hit of closing down all these, all these offices for one day to think about. It sends a sort of powerful behavioral signal. With other ones like Wells Fargo, it, it seems less authentic because there isn't a behavior to connect with it. Um, it seems more about um, sort of 
um, optics rather than behavior. I think that's one big distinguishing thing that you can that you can say. Are they doing things? Forget what they're saying. Are they doing right. things? What fascinates me is the sort of chicken and egg question of, uh, you know, companies that go into these decisions knowing that they're going to take some short-term pain for the sake of the long-term relationship with both employees and customers alike versus those that just don't see it coming and take the hit anyway. Right, right, right. Well, and, and, and certainly if we sort of flip the scenario, you know, Amazon for years, you know, sort of took a hit, right? You know, by, by not, uh, not on the same sort of ethical way, but in, in the way of just sort of foregoing future profits and, and knowing that they were going to have these bad quarters and knowing that they were going to lose money. And, and everyone being sort of at first uncomfortable, but increasingly comfortable with the idea that it's an investment, that it's going to pay off in the long run. And it'll be interesting to see if we come to see these kind of larger calculations um, and shifts by, by companies like Facebook in the same sort of light where we say, look, why should we, you know, sort of worship at the altar of unrelenting, unremitting growth all the time. Um, real growth, you know, it can take a lot of different forms. And sometimes that form is to, is to lose money today in order to make it tomorrow. Fantastic. Well, Dan, thank you so much. Uh, where can people find your book? Yeah, it's, it's out there. It's on, it's on Amazon. It's on 1-800-CEO-READS is another good place to get a, a good price on it. Um, and I've, I've got other information and at danielcoil.com. Thank you so much, Dan. You bet. Today's episode was produced by Matthew, one more time for coverage, Brown, with music from Synchronize. I highly recommend picking up a copy of Daniel's latest work, The Culture Code. You can find it anywhere books are sold. Be a friend and subscribe to the show so you can get new episodes delivered to your feed each and every week. As always, I'm Megan Keeney-Anderson, and thanks for listening.